All right. This morning, being the first Sunday of Advent, we're going to start with the first reading, and that's in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 63. So Isaiah chapter 63, we'll do the first reading, and then that's what we're going to be focusing on this morning. Isaiah chapter 63, let's start in verse 15. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 15. Uh, I think the lectionary actually starts in verse 16. Um, but we're going to start in 15 because that's a weird way to start in 16, okay? I, I understand probably why they want to skip 15, but that's a whole, that's, that's neither here nor there. Isaiah 63, verse 15. It says, look down from heaven and behold from the habitation of the holiness and of thy glory, where is thy zeal and thy strength, the sounding of thy bowels and of thy mercies towards me, are they restrained? So look at that one more time. Look down from heaven and behold from the habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory. Where is thy zeal and thy strength, the soundness of thy bowels and of thy mercies towards me? Are they restrained? Doubtless thou art fathers. Doubtless though, let me read this again. Doubtless thou art our father. Though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledge, acknowledge us not. Thou, O Lord, art our Father, our Redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. Right? So just immediately just reading this, we already see we got a lot to try to figure out, do we not? Right? I mean, that first part, look down from heaven, okay? We, we know something's going on, and doubtless thou Art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledge us not. Like, so wait, who, who's, who's talking? What, what is going on? It says, O Lord, our, our father, our redeemer, thy name is from everlasting. O Lord, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways, and harden our hearts from thy fear? Return for thy servant's sake the tribes of thine inheritance." The people of the holiness have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary. We are thine. Thou never bearest rule over them. They were not called by thy name. Already right there just leaves us with lots of questions, does it not? Now the next part is chapter 64. They skip verse 1 again, but I'm going to read verse 1. O thou, thou... Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. As when the melting fire burneth, their fire causeth waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. When thou didst terrible things which we looked not for, thou camest down, the mountains flowed down at thy presence. Now, a certain word is starting to be used frequently. I don't know if you've caught it yet, but okay. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the, the ear, neither hath eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. Thou meetest him that rejoiced, rejoiceth and worketh righteousness. Those that remember thee and thy ways, behold, thou art wroth, for we have sinned, and the in those is continuance, and we shall be saved. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags. We all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And there is none that calleth upon thy name, that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us, and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. Now that is a... Strange first reading for the first Sunday of Advent, is it not? I would say it doesn't end in a positive way, does it? But it seems to end in a very negative way. Something, and not only that, it's wordy and it's typical Isaiah, right? Typically in Isaiah, who's talking to whom? Who's speaking to whom? Who's it about? It's the typical problems in Isaiah. But we're going to use this 63 and 64 to try to at least begin our walk through Advent, and just as this starts in a very negative way, I'm going to begin this in a very negative way, all right? In fact, I want to begin with a very troubling statistic, all right? 
Are you ready for this number? You may want to write this number down. If you've been listening to the podcast, I've talked about it frequently. I even mentioned it Wednesday here. 49,449. 49,449. 49,449. That is the number of people who killed themselves in 2022 in the United States of America. 49,449 people took their own lives in one calendar year in the United States of America. It's a record number. 49,449. That should be problematic and troubling for anyone who hears it. If it was only two, if it was only three, that's a tragedy. But 49,449, that's... That's a societal problem that I don't know if anyone really wants to deal with, right? That's a lot. A lot of people just say, well, not my problem. Well, that's 49,449 human beings creating the image of God who reach a point in their life where there's no point in going on. There's no hope. There's no reason. There's no purpose. I'm not going to take another second of this. And they end their own life. That's, that's, a, that's a tragic number. And even though it's a tragedy and even though it's horrible, in some ways it really, I think, is a good place to start the Advent season because the first reading also starts in a very not-such-pleasant way, doesn't it? So we're going to work our way through this and we're going to see what we can find. Let's, let's begin here. Let's begin with the historical setting of Isaiah and see if in this we can find... I'm not saying we're going to find an answer for why 49,449 people killed themselves in one calendar year, nor am I going to say that we're going to have an answer that would help prevent it. But I think it does capture a lot of the, uh, I think, a feeling that is very connected a little bit to this to some level. All right. Are you ready? Here's the historical setting. Does anybody know the historical setting for Isaiah 63 or 62 to 64? Does anybody know the historical setting? The historical setting of Isaiah 62 through 64 is during the period of the Babylonian exile of the Israelites. This is during the period of the Babylonian exile of the Israelites, or of Judah, if you want to say it that way. All right? That means they're where? In captivity. That means they they have been captured. That's not a good thing. That's a very depressing, discouraging thing. And they're going to be there for how long? 70 years. Meaning there's a large number of people who go into captivity and guess what they will never see? They're never, we're not going to see the promised land. They're never going to see freedom. They're going to probably die in captivity. Others will be born there who may see out. That's a, that's a very discouraging time, is it not? During this time, Jerusalem and the temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians. So the temple's been destroyed. And we, we, we saw that a little bit in the reading. I don't know if you caught it, but uh, the, the temple's gone. Now, the temple is gone. What is that going to feel like for them? That God is gone. So they're going to be in a hopeless, discouraged situation. Um, during this time, Jerusalem and the temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians. The Israelites were living in exile in Babylon. The prophet Isaiah encourages the people with messages of hope and restoration, assuring them that God will redeem and restore them. So somewhere within these chapters, there's supposed to be some message of hope. Somewhere in this. Somewhere in this. We'll, we'll see if we find any hope. I don't know if we're going to find any hope in the reading. I think the readings are almost designed not to give us any hope, but... We'll, we'll, we'll look to that in a minute. Isaiah 62, I know we did not read this, but we need context, begins with the prophet proclaiming that Zion, or Jerusalem, will be restored and become a symbol of God's glory among the nations. The chapter emphasizes the transformation and vindication of Jerusalem, as well as the establishment of justice and righteousness in the land. Now, immediately when we see this, we know we have a, already a major theological issue. Because remember, when you get to Isaiah, over and over and over, you have promises of the restoration of Jerusalem and all, and and a restoration of Israel back in the land. And some of those promises, where where is the debate in church history about these promises? 
Well, first, were they fulfilled in the return from Babylon? Some will say yes, and the language is just hyperbolic and sensational and symbolic, and it was all fulfilled. So it's all been fulfilled. Done, end of story, the, the end. All right? Others say, come on, that's ridiculous. There's no way that that happened. So therefore, it points to a future, a future restoration of what? The temple and Israel, basically a national salvation being brought back in the land and all these promises being fulfilled, right? That's another way of looking at it. Others, especially in the reform world, go absolutely not ridiculous that those promises are fulfilled where? And the church, spiritually not Literally, all right? So we know we have all of those debates. Unfortunately, we could spend, you know, we could spend all of Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Easter. We could spend the rest of the church year just trying to figure those problems out. But we've talked about them over and over and over and over again, all right? Over and over and over again. So I'm not going to get back into all of that. It's just a never-ending debate. It gets irritating. It gets frustrating. I, I did a sermon review dealing with some of this the other day, and it was just, I was so frustrated by the end of it because it's just so ridiculous trying to listen to the argument sometimes about all of this. But for our sake, we're just going to look at it going, all right, it's promising some message of hope. Wherever we want to put that hope at, it's at least a message of hope to some level, right? And Isaiah 63, so in chapter 62, it's basically a message of, hey, Jerusalem's going to be restored and, and everything's going to be great. 63, the prophet speaks of God's judgment against the enemies of Israel and the salvation of his people. He recalls God's past acts of deliverance on behalf of Israel and pleads for God's mercy and intervention once again. The most important thing to remember, in 63, there's a plea, there's a prayer. Keep that in mind. In 63, there's a prayer. What we started reading in the first reading today That's the prayer part. Who's praying to whom? We can figure all of that out. But there's a prayer part. All right? Does that make sense? And Isaiah 64, which we read the beginning of it, the prophet laments the current state of the people and their sinfulness, acknowledging their need for God's forgiveness and restoration. The chapter concludes with a prayer for God's intervention and the renewed presence of his spirit among the people. So we're going to look at the 60 and 63, we're going to look at a prayer. Then we're going to go to 64, where we're going to look more at a confession, almost, or an acknowledgement. And we're going to see how this all relates to Advent. Overall, the historical context of Isaiah 62 through 64 is one of exile and longing for restoration. And whatever words of hope, we'll see if we see any words of hope, but I think the lectionary purposely didn't removed all the words of hope. I think they kind of removed the words of hope a little bit. And we could argue why, but I think they do. All right? So we're going to start where the text does and see what we can find. All right? We, we have to move a, relatively quickly, but we'll see what we can do. All right, everybody ready? I'm going to use a different translation here just because this is so wordy, and especially from the King James. I mean, it's King James is, oh man, trying to follow all that. It's a mess. So I'm going to use a different translation. I, will re, I may go back to the King James here or there for clarification. If you see something that you're like, wait a minute, help me out. That's, all, all, that, that's no problem. Let me know. But we're going to try to just get, gather the basic concepts here. We're not going to deal with all the battles about eschatology. Everybody okay with that? All right, let's get the basic concepts here. Here we go. I think this is an important phrase. Isaiah 63.15. How do all of your translations begin in Isaiah 63.15? Look down. What does everybody else have? Look down. All right. That, that's very important because look at chapter 64. Verse 1. Come down. Everybody see that? Look down. Come down. So immediately, I think that's important to get this idea, all right? Clearly, in this section, there is a desire for someone to look down and for someone to come down. We'll figure out who that is, and I think it becomes obvious. There's, there's something going on. Please look down and then come down. Like, could you look here and see, and then could you come down and do something? 
All right? Now, let's look at exactly what they say. Look down from heaven and see. Look, that, that's immediately, they're just acknowledging, hey, could you just look and see? Do all the translations seem to agree with that concept, to look down and to see or to behold. All right, so immediately we know this is a, a prayer is involved here, right? This is a prayer. And it's a begging God to just, it's almost as if God's not, they don't feel like God's paying any attention. Now, the historical context could give us a feeling why. The temple's destroyed. They're not in their own land. They're not in the promised land. They're in Babylon. They're in captivity. They're slaves. So they're like, hey, could you, I don't know, maybe pay attention a little bit? I think that's a fair thing to, to, to say, all right? And it says, but note how it says this. Look down from heaven and see, now from this translation, from your lofty home. How does the other translations describe it? From the habitation of thy holiness. Now, this one says, from your lofty home, holy and beautiful. Now, I, this to me, now you can tell me if you disagree. Now, this, this is so important. One of the reasons I'm going to walk through this, this is so important. And I even wrote this in my notes. I didn't read it, but I put this in my notes. The more I studied this, this is one of those times you don't want to outline this. This is a time you don't want a cold academic outline. What you're supposed to do is to try to feel the emotion here. All right? And you, can, you, you may disagree with me. To me, there's a little bit of sarcasm here. Where are they? They're in captivity. And they say, look down from your lofty home, holy and beautiful. How does the King James put it? Hey, you're in holiness and glory. Look where you are. Look where we are. Right? Now, you may not feel that that's how it's, it's meant, but I feel that a little bit, right? Hey, do you mind? Do you mind? I mean, sometimes, I think we've, we've all been there as human beings, right? You can be in a situation, and, so, and you're like, hey, do you mind paying attention to me for a second? Because everything where you are seems to be pretty good and things are not so good for me. Do you think you can take a second to look at my situation? Have we not, all not been there? Right? You know, someone, because sometimes, you know, yeah, I mean, some, sometimes that, that stark contrast, it's, it's, it's hard sometimes not to, I mean, put it, you feel it, Right? When you're in one situation and the other person is in a radically different situation, to say that we don't feel it would be a lie. We can pretend that we don't. That don't seem to be pretending. Yeah, I think so. And then it says, how is it, uh, what is your next sentence? Yeah, where is your zeal and your might? Your yearning and your compassion are withheld from me. Hey, you seem not to care about me. Everything seems to be going pretty good for you. Okay, right? But I don't see any yearning. I don't see any compassion. I don't see any zeal. What are you, you're not doing anything for me. Now, we may not want to admit this. I think a lot of people in life can feel that way sometimes. 49,449 people killed themselves. They reached, obviously, a point where they felt something like this. And sometimes you can look at your life and look around and go, hey, God, um, you know, this is not like where you are. Do you think maybe you can look down and kind of see? And what, what, what's their exact words? Your, your, uh, uh, where is your zeal, your might, your yearning, and your compassion are withheld from me? How does the uh, King James translate translate it? Are they restrained? Now it's almost in the King James more of a question form, but I think it's it's rhetorical. Obviously, it's restrained. We're in captivity. Where are you? Could could you you know yeah? Could you do something here to help me out? Next verse. I got to try to move through these quickly. Now, but I love this next part. 
What's the next verse in, in the King James? Doubtless thou art thy father. This one, I like this. Yet you are our father. Now, that, now this is the, I love this. Because sometimes people forget the way, this is the way I think it should work in Christianity, even though people don't believe it should. On one hand, and within Christianity, this is how the Christians think we have. Admit their feeling, do they not? Dude, where are you? But then, so please know, we, we must acknowledge the reality of what we feel because if we don't acknowledge the reality of what we feel, we're only playing games. And playing games should not have a place within Christianity. Right? They admit it. But then what did they say? That phrase right there at the beginning of that next verse. Doubtless thou art our, thy, our father, right? Or that's, I'm, I'm, our father, right, our father, our father. And then my translation says, yet you are our father. The key here, this is an acknowledgement that, please know, you acknowledge the reality of your situation, but then you do what? Cling to your faith. My faith says you are our father. You're, in practice, what does it feel like? You're not a very good one. Where are you? But their face is doubtless. I like the way the King James puts it. Doubtless thou art our father. They, they, they know by faith that. And that's the conflict of the Christian life. That's the reality of the Christian life, right? What we experience is radically different than what we believe. We have to acknowledge it, but with that, by, that's, that's why the world sometimes doesn't understand. We See, many in the church want you to deny what you feel. No, no, no. We acknowledge what we feel, but that does not destroy our faith. And that's the hard part to reconcile. Because some people think if you don't say the right words, you don't have faith. There's the faith. And then I love this part. Even though Abraham does not know us, what do you think they're saying there? Even though Abraham do not, does not know us. Either one, like we're so far removed from that that Abraham doesn't know us or we are so opposite of what we were supposed to be. Like this may be enough that even Abraham wouldn't recognize us. Right? Abraham would be like, I don't know who the, I, I don't know who they are. I, I do not, I always make the joke and it offends everyone, but I constantly say I'm adopted and I do not belong to anyone in my family and I have no connection to anyone in my family because I'm like, and I don't. Well, this is in a sense like even Abraham wouldn't recognize us. Even he wouldn't acknowledge us. And what, and then the next part. Israel doesn't recognize us. Now, when it says Israel, what do you, do you, what do you think that's referencing? Do you think it's the northern kingdom? What was Jacob's name? Do you think it's a reference to him? I could be wrong. I'm just throwing out a, a concept, throwing out a concept, okay? But what are they claiming? We're in such a place that nobody would recognize us. And then what do they say? You, Lord, are our Father. Your name is our Redeemer from ancient times. How does the King James translate the rest of that? After he says. Okay. So in other words, hey, we understand we're in bad. Like we're, we're so bad that even Abraham would be like, I don't know who they are. Even Israel would be like, I don't know. I don't know. Like, like we're in bad place. But, but yet, even though we're, they're still acknowledging it, you see that it keeps going back and forth. Acknowledgement, faith. Acknowledgement, faith. Acknowledgement, faith. Or do you see that pattern developing there? And so what do they confess? Even though they know they're in a bad place, what are they, all the things they confess about God there at the end? Father, Redeemer. Right. From everlasting. You're eternal. You're our father, you're a redeemer. Do they feel like he's redeemed them? At this? No. It, it, that's the, that's the never-ending problem. Like, we, we, and it, we, we, to walk by faith and not by sight doesn't mean you ignore what you see. 
To walk by faith and not by sight is to acknowledge what you see, but then to still walk by the faith of what you can't see. They're acknowledging what they see. They're not fools. They know how bad their situation is, right? But they still are holding to by faith, all right? Next verse. Now, this is where it gets really complicated. What do they say in 17? I love this. I love this because I like the brutal honesty here. They blame God. Yes, they do blame God. And some people would say you shouldn't do this. Some people would say that this is wrong on them. And I tell everyone, be quiet. I think they have a legitimate complaint. Now, nobody wants to hear that, but I believe they do. And what's their complaint? Why do you make us stray from your ways? Why do you harden our hearts so that we do not fear you? Now, I know that that makes people very uncomfortable, right? It makes people very uncomfortable. But this is an acknowledgement that who's in charge? God, and if God is in charge, could he have kept them from all of this rebellion and sin? He could have kept them from it, does he, right? Doesn't the Bible say who, who has basically the reins of a man's heart in his hands? It's God. Who turns man's heart? God. Who's the one who brings repentance? God. Who's the one who brings conviction? God. Well, if God is the one who do it, then you can see why that would be like, Now, I know we'd be like, no, 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 It's not God. It's not God's fault. It's not God's fault. It's not God's fault. It's our fault. We get the blame. I got no problem with that. But at the same time, I mean, remember, all I have to do is just walk this all the way back, and you know where I'm going to walk it right back to. What's the most troubling, difficult verse in the entire Bible? Genesis 1.1. It makes literally, absolutely no sense from a philosophical standpoint. Christianity is the most philosophically unsatisfying religion in the history of humankind. I can find more satisfying philosophy anywhere than Christianity. It's not philosophically satisfying. And if anyone wants to pretend that it is, they're making it up. Because in the beginning, God creates. That God is all-knowing and all-powerful. Yet he creates a world knowing that sin's going to enter in the world, and he does nothing to stop the sin. In fact, he creates the very being that's going to bring sin into the world. And he could have destroyed that being. And then when sin entered the world, he could destroy the people who sinned. Then that would stop the spread of sin. But he lets them have kids. The way that one's going to kill the other. And then he lets them have kids. And then when he gets finally to Genesis 6, he realizes this is an absolute and total train wreck. So I'll kill everyone. That's comforting. That's comforting. Oh, but I'm going to let how many people on the boat? Eight people. The only problem is those eight people on the boat are sinners. And as soon as the boat, the cruise comes to an end, Noah is nude and drunk. And then something goes down inside that tent that nobody wants to talk about. Possibly something very not good. And then, then what happens after that? Sin, 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 all the way. And that sin involves some horrific things, ladies and gentlemen. People want to talk about banning books. Let's just go to the book of Judges. Nobody wants anybody reading that. I can't even preach that with kids in a sanctuary. Right? What happens to the woman? Judges, do anybody want me to say? Okay, yeah, before she's cut up, something else horribly happens to her of a sexual nature, right? Okay, then her body is chopped up. I mean, horrific things. And you're like, what is going on? Sin is everywhere. Now, again, you can try to remove God from it. He knew it was going to happen. I don't like that. But I think it's perfectly natural. And, and, I, and, and I'm not saying we should ever say it as an excuse, but I think it's perfectly natural to go, wait a minute, God. I think you could have kept us from this. Right? I mean, because we see it in the Bible. When Abraham's like, whoa, tell him you're my sister because, you know, I could die. God stepped in and protected her two times, right? And let Abraham off the hook. 
Where, where was God when David saw someone taking a bath? He could, have, he could have stepped in at any point. He literally stepped in to stop what happened to say. Didn't step in at all. Yeah, he didn't step, he doesn't step in at all. He, he just steps back and let the whole thing happen. And then the baby dies. Okay? Oh, yeah, of course the husband gets murdered. God could have God could prevented any of this. And then he and then the, the one who gets, oh, David, he's such a bad guy. Well, the next one, his son, <laughs> yeah. Well, we won't even get into Solomon, will we? I mean, the wisest man who ever lived committed more adultery than probably anyone who's ever existed in the history of mankind. And we read his great book on Proverbs about adultery. Isn't it weird that the man who committed more adultery than anyone is the one who writes a book condemning adultery? You're kind of like, now maybe he would know the best. I don't know. But it, it's, a, it's a crazy situation. So I'm just saying, we, we want to remove God from it. And I know we want to remove God from it. But it's hard to remove God from it if we claim that God is all-knowing, all-powerful. And when we claim, especially in the reform world, we even more, well, it doesn't even matter which way you go. If you're non-reform, you say, well, God gave man free will, but he gave man free will knowing exactly what would they do. And if man has free will and God can't do anything about man to help man spiritually, then what's the point of even praying for anybody? And will. I believe in free will, but then we pray that God would save someone. Well, God can't save someone. He can't do anything, so stop praying for people. And if you don't believe in free will, then we believe God is the one who has to grant repentance and faith, has to give faith. Well, then it is all on God. So, but you can see their frustration. And the, but please note, that frustration is perfect and for this sense. Once again, it describes that conflict between faith and what we experience. That's what this whole text is showing, right? Hey God, where are you? You're our father. Hey God, you're responsible for this, but you're our father. You see that conflict between the two? Right? So he says, why, Lord, do you make us stray from uh, your ways? You harden our hearts so that we do not fear you. Return because of your servants, the tribe of your heritage. Your holy people had a possession for a little while, but your enemies have trampled down your sanctuary. We become like those who never ruled, like those who did not bear your name. Basically, he's like, God, where have you been? Could you do something? It's almost like they're trying to inform God about what happened. Hey, God, I don't know if you realize this, uh, your temple's gone, and we basically look like the people that you never ruled over. But I thought we were your possession. I thought you ruled over us. Chapter 64. So then, now, so there they're like, look down. Hey, look, look down. Now what do they say? If only you would tear the heavens open. And come down. Hey, we, I need you to do more than look. I need you to show up. We need you to rip the, the heavens wide open and come down. And then I've got to go through this quickly. I've got to go through this quickly. All right. So, that the, so he wants them to come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence just as fire kindles brushwood and fire boils water to make your name known to your enemies so that the nations will tremble at your presence. When you did awesome works, then we did not expect you came down from the mountains quake at your presence. Basically, what is he saying? Come down and do what? Or they're saying, come down and do what? Show your power and destroy our enemies. Show up, do something. When you did awesome works that we did not expect, you came down from the mountains, quaked at your presence. Verse 4. From ancient times, no one has heard, no one has listened to, no eye has seen any God except you who acts on behalf of those who waits for him. Now, I know that's a little different than the King James, but the bottom line is, hey, no one has seen basically what you can do. And we're going to wait on you for you to do it. Once again, there's a little bit of the faith element coming in, Right? See that conflict between the two? There's a conflict between the two. Now, uh, next verse. Uh, you welcome the, the one who joyfully does 
what is right. They remember you in your ways. But we have what? Sinned and you are angry. How can we be saved if we remain in our sins? All of us have become like something unclean. All our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. All of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. What do they ultimately acknowledge? Their sinfulness. Now, remember, do you see that it almost sounds like a contradiction? Because earlier they were blaming whom? God. And now they're saying, we messed up. That's the weird part of Christianity. It's this constant duality, right? This constant back and forth. On one hand, we, we must, we are Christian. Christians should see the reality of what we experience and who we are. And we must acknowledge that reality. At the same time, in the midst of said reality, we walk by faith. And how those two work together, it doesn't always make sense, does it? But we have to always be willing to acknowledge the reality of the world in which we live. Now, that is the first reading for today. Now, because of our time, well, then we're going to have to do this. We're going to have to just try to take some things away from this. Now, the gospel reading is Mark chapter 13, verses 33 through 37. We can just look at it really quick. This is the gospel reading. Do what? We've looked at it a couple times. Yeah. But this is the gospel reading for today. Mark chapter 13. We'll start in verse 32. Mark 13, 32. But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son but the Father. Take ye heed, watch and pray, for you know not when that time, when the time is. For the Son of Man is a man taking a far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants, and to every man his work, and to command the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for you know not when the master of the house cometh, at evening or at midnight, or at the cock crowing, or in the, or in the morning. Lest coming suddenly he finds you sleeping, and what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. Now the gospel reading is just telling you to do what? Pay attention, he's coming. Pay attention, he's coming. The first reading is like, hey, we're in bad, bad shape. We need you to come do something. Now their emphasis is on destroying their enemies. Come back and judge we need help. And here, Jesus is telling them, you need to be on the watch. You need to be on, on, on looking out. You need to take heed. You need to pray. But both of them are referencing a coming. Now, we could get into a discussion which coming Mark is referencing because some say that reference may be actually 70 AD. We could get, again, all of the problems with eschatology here. But we're getting a basic idea here to be on the lookout. So here's what I want to do. I want to take these readings. And because of time, we're going to do this. All right. Um, I want us to look at three points here, and and just try to take three points away from these two readings. All right, and 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 do this in light of this being the first Sunday of Advent. All right. Advent is a time for us to stand in the light and see our own condition. Advent is a time to stand in the light because Advent deals with light a lot and see our own condition because that's what happens here, right? Is that what happens in Isaiah? Are they acknowledging their condition? Are they being, are they uh, pretending at all? They're being raw. They're being real. They're not, they're not faking it. You got to be willing to acknowledge the reality of what you feel. You got to be able to, you got to be able to be honest with that. I think that's important. All right? Advent is a time for us to stand in the light and see our own condition. Second, Advent is a time to be once again reminded of the coming judgment. They're looking, in Isaiah, they're looking for a judgment. They want judgment on whom? Their enemies. Mark is reminding everyone, hey, be ready, Christ comes back. Don't be found sleeping. But we do know when Christ comes back, there is the judgment, right? Now, we talked about this. 
Some believe there's one judgment. Some believe there's seven judgments. We've talked about all of this. But whether there's one, whether there's seven, judgment is coming. And it doesn't take a lot to get you a little concerned when you open up things like, I don't know, Revelation 19, and the sky rips apart, and it comes back on a white horse and kills everyone. That's pretty disturbing. I don't want to be found asleep for that, right? Revelation chapter 20. The dead are called before him. He opens up the books and those who are not found in it. Thrown into the lake of fire. Nobody wants that. So we need to, in Advent, be awake and alert for the coming of Christ. We need to know judgment is coming. It's just a reality. Judgment in some way, shape, or form is coming. That's something we all need to wake up to. And Advent is about looking to that and not being asleep to it. So first, Advent is a time for us to stand in light and see our condition and be honest with it. Second, Advent is a time to be reminded once again that judgment is coming. And then number three, I think this is important. Advent is a time to run to, cling to, and celebrate the first coming of Christ. Now, this is how I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, so I'll, I'll say that again so that you can write it down. Advent is a time to run to, cling to, and celebrate the first coming of Christ. And that's very important in light of that Isaiah passage, right? That's very important, all right? Because they needed more than Christ coming to destroy their enemies. That's what they can never realize, right? They always thought their problem is their enemies, even though they could acknowledge their sin, they didn't really see that they needed to be saved from their sin. And that's what they really needed to be saved from. But this this third point works perfectly with the Isaiah. And Isaiah, we had two contrasts. I want you to just see it over and over and over. The one contrast is the reality. Right? And the other is the faith. And Advent is where we acknowledge that reality. And we, in fact, acknowledge two realities. We acknowledge the reality of our world, our condition, our sin, our own our own mental, emotional issues. We just acknowledge we're messed up people and here's my struggles, right? We don't play any games. We just say it, right? And we may even express our own frustration with God. At the same time, we acknowledge that he's going to come back and he's going to judge irregardless of my feelings. But at the same time, it is in Advent that we reach out and then claim and we see something by faith. And what we see by faith is Christ came the first time to save me from my sins. Now, that doesn't fix all my emotional issues, right? That doesn't fix the reality of the world in which we live. But that is at least a little bit of hope, right? And, and sometimes we forget that this is the message. I mean, you can look at it quickly. Look at Matthew one twenty one, just quickly. Because this is right here in the story of the coming of Christ. What does it say in Matthew 1, 21? His name, Jesus. And why are they going to call him Jesus? Save his people from their sins. Now, primarily, first and foremost, that is to whom? That's to Israel. That's to Israel. That's what they really need. Sometimes, by faith, we got to see that God provides what we really need more than what we want. Because what we really need is to be saved from our sins because that's the ultimate issue is that separation from God. We need God to tear open the heavens and come down. Yes, in a sense to bring judgment, but we want him to pour that judgment out on his son, right? Because if he doesn't pour out his judgment on his son, then it's going to come upon us. But if we are in Christ, that judgment's already been paid for in Christ, right? What do we call that? propitiation. He satisfied the wrath of God. God's wrath was... When we always say, Jesus died for us, ultimately he died to satisfy God. He died to please God. He he died to satisfy that wrath. And then therefore we escape that wrath. So Advent really has these three parts. It's a time for us to be open and honest. It's okay to be open and honest. It's, it's okay to say, hey, God, I don't understand sometimes why this and why this and why this and why this and why you don't do this and why you didn't help here. And, and does it, does it, do we always get an answer? No, that's the hard part. 
Rarely do we get an answer. But then, and then we acknowledge, hey, he's going to come and judge. We never forget that. We want to be alert to that. But then that third part is, and I think it's really the key element here, is that we, grab, we run and cling to what we know by faith. And what we know by faith is God is our Father, even though it doesn't sometimes feel like it, but that we pray in the Lord's Prayer, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Right? Okay? We, we're acknowledging him as our Father. By faith. Does it always feel like it? Sometimes it feels like, you know, from someone who's came from a bad family, yeah, well, you know, you, you're pretty bad as a father, right? Okay, but we know that that's not the way it is. We understand he's our heavenly father, loving father. We know, but we have to take it by faith because sometimes we don't feel it. We know he's our redeemer. No, sometimes we wish he would be our redeemer from our bad circumstances, but he's a redeemer from our sin. We know that there will be ultimately a time where there'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no more death, and no more tears, but we know that that is not now. Right? Now, that faith, hope, at least gives you some kind of hope. And it's hard, and I, I wish I could give you, I wish I could tell you right now, here's the way you do so. Here, you walk in the reality of the real world, and you walk in faith, and I wish I could tell you how to make those two work. But they're in conflict with each other. And in Isaiah, in that passage, it's kind of wordy and hard to understand. I hope you saw that conflict. On one minute, they're saying, you're our father. You're a redeemer. You're everlasting. And the next part, they're like, where are you? What are you doing? Why didn't you help us? And, you know, and, and, but at the same time, when they kind of blame God for their sin, they turn around and acknowledge that their sinfulness. It seems contradictory. I think the entire Christian life is one of contradiction. And Christianity always tries to, Christianity doesn't like contradiction. Christianity likes to remove contradiction, but it removes contradiction for a false sense of certainty. See, we want to remove the reality and create a fake reality that we say is walking by faith. Walking by faith is not walking in a fake reality. Walking by faith is walking in an acknowledgement of a true reality but clinging to that which that reality doesn't point to. Did everybody hear that? Walking by faith is not walking in a fake reality. Walking by faith is walking in a reality that you acknowledge, but then you cling to that which you cannot see and which doesn't seem to correspond to that reality. The reality would... What would, the, what would reality... Last, I, could, I could look at my text messages from Rebecca last night. She was sending me all these crazy things that were going on. Earthquake. Um, there were some Catholics were killed in mass because of a bomb going off in Philippines. And then the, 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 Philippine, the, the government in, Philipp, in the Philippines went after these Islamic terrorists and slaughtered them. She was just sending me one news article after a news article. And she's like, man, this, the world is a mess. Walking by faith is an acknowledgement the world is a mess. It's not denying that. See, some people want to say walking by faith is like all things work together for good. And, and, we, and we say that meaning that things are going to work out good for us now. Right? Now. Like the cancer is going to go away. That's not going to happen. That's not going to. No. All horrible, tragic things happen to believers and unbelievers alike. And it can, it can lead us to a total pit of despair. Okay? Even Christians, I know no one wants to admit this, and I know I'll get, I'm going to get pushback, but I don't care. Even Christians can be brought to the brink of despair and suicide. And to say otherwise is ridiculous because we're human beings. Right? We live in this world. Christians can get cancer. Christians can get depressed. Christians can break a leg. Christians can have mental health issues. Anxiety, schizophrenia, you name it. Panic attacks, all all kinds of things, right? Because we're human beings in a fleshly body. Some Christians might be like, no, you just don't have any problems when you come to Jesus and you would never get depressed again. You're just lying. 
That's not walking by faith. That's creating a fake reality to make you seem like you're walking by faith. No, walking by, it doesn't take faith to walk in a fake reality where everyone's going to be happy, healthy, wealthy, prosperous. That doesn't require faith. You know what requires faith? Is when you're sitting there having dinner and your, servant, your messenger comes in and says, hey, all your property just got destroyed. And then another, all your kids just died. And then another one, this just happened. I'm referring to the book of Job. That's faith. Because he then went outside, tore his garments, sat in sackcloth and ashes and worshipped God. I don't even know how he pulled that off. Did he deny the reality? Absolutely not. Throughout the entire book of Job, he's like, I wish I was never born. Where are you, God? What is going on? And Christians would be like, you can't say that. Just shut up. I can say it, all right? Because it's the reality. Don't have to pretend. Don't pretend. Say the reality. Advent is where we acknowledge the reality. We're in a dark, 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 dark world. And sometimes it makes no sense. And it's full of pain. And it's full of hurt. But we have by faith believed that Christ came the first time. He will come the second time. And that second time will bring judgment. But it will ultimately bring the redemption of all things. And there will be a new heaven, a new earth. Well, no more pain, no more suffering, and no more death. But in the meantime, we, work, we walk by faith in the reality that's not pleasant. It's not by denying that reality and creating a fake reality. I hope that makes sense. All right, we'll stop there. That is the first reading today. Please spend more time with it if you can. We went through it as fast as we can, but I hope you see the, the, that, that kind of struggle there. And that's why it's hard to read. It's kind of like, what is going on here? I think that's what it does. All right, so let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. Lord, this is only the first Sunday of Advent. We have four weeks to spend time thinking about the first and second coming of your son. I pray that this would be spiritually beneficial for everyone present and everyone else who will participate. And we ask this in the precious name of your son, Jesus. And God's people said,